Welcome in to the Omar Podcast International. I'm your host, Scott Peterson. Today, we have a very special episode for you as Omar CEO Philip Westermeyer takes the reins for a chat with Snapchat founder and CEO Evan Spiegel. Evan founded Snapchat in his mid-20s and reached billionaire status in his early 30s. While success was by no means linear, the app is currently used by around about 350 million people worldwide, and it's safe to say that Snapchat is indeed a hit. In this episode, Evan and Philip discuss Evan's initial failure as an entrepreneur, when augmented reality really will break through to the mainstream, and why Evan is still a believer in Twitter with Elon Musk at the helm. All of that and more right now in the OMR podcast. Hi, Evan. <laughs> it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Your first ever podcast. How can that happen? <laughs> no, it's, it's just, uh, exciting. We'll have to see how it goes. No, no promises. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you've been probably asked many times to be on a podcast, but you were careful about it. I had to fly all the way to uh, Germany. So. <laughs> um, like, take us a little bit with you on like how it all started. Now you're this famous founder and everybody in Germany and worldwide knows Snap. But that wasn't a given. I mean, you started out like small. Yeah, well, Bobby and I lived across the hall from each other in college. And uh, we really, we both were working at different companies at the time. And we wanted to start building stuff. So we made a bunch of things that didn't work very well. The kind of the biggest one that we worked the hardest on was called Future Freshman. And it was designed to help people get into college. So it was this really complex piece of essentially like enterprise software to help uh, people get into college. And it it was a total failure. I mean, both of our siblings were applying to college at the time, and they didn't even use it. Uh, my mom subscribed, which I really appreciated. But other than that, it was it was a total <laughs> it was a total failure. And we'd spent about a year a year working on that. So shutting that down was uh, I guess that was in my junior year. We shut it down. And we started thinking about other things we could work on. One of my other friends at the time was like, "Oh my gosh, wouldn't it be so cool if you could send photos that disappeared?" And we were like, "Oh yeah, that would, that'd be awesome." So. We worked on this little app. It was called Pickaboo at the time. You know, I drew the little ghost logo in my uh, dorm room. And, you know, we we uh, went and pitched it actually to my design class at the time. We said, look, you can send photos that disappear. And everyone said, you know, no, you can't. You can always take a screenshot. You know, who's going to use this? This is so silly. And what we then learned over time as our friends started using uh, Pickaboo, which became Snapchat, is that people weren't really using it to send photos that disappeared. They didn't care that much about that part, what they were really focused on was talking with pictures uh, because it became a much more expressive way to show your friends what you were doing or how you feel. You know, text messaging can be very boring. It's hard to understand sometimes. Uh, but when you send a photo, you can show your emotion in a, a split second. And so I think people really enjoyed talking visually. And so we renamed the app Snapchat and, and you know, that was in 2011. And I guess the rest is history. I mean, you've been part of the Stanford University, studied there. Um, so was it already like, your plan to build a major company or was it just playing around? Uh, no, no, not at all. It was, it was definitely playing around. Although I will say I, I got a, the chance to sit in on a business school class my sophomore year that really changed my life. It was called Entrepreneurship and Venture Capital, and it was taught by uh, Peter Wendell and Eric Schmidt. And they would have lots of founders come in almost every week and share their stories of creating their company. So the, the Eric Schmidt, the Google Eric Schmidt. That Eric Schmidt, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and as a as a guest uh, of of the class, my chair was next to the guest lecturer chair, and so all these amazing uh, lecturers would come in. You know, the Chad Hurley who who created YouTube, Scott Cook who created Intuit, and they would sit next to me when they came to go <laughs> teach in this class. And so I would just start talking to them, and 
I actually begged Scott Cook uh, for a job, so he gave me a job at, at Intuit, working on a an early project for people to to make websites using their cell phones, which was really cool. Um, but that class totally changed my view of business and got me really excited about you know what it what it really takes to to build a business. So that is a, a, a way that um, you know. I, that's that's when I really started thinking about uh, you know building a business. But and then you had Snap, and at one point did you realize that Snap could maybe be that transformative business for you and, and for like so many million people? Well, after our experience with Future Freshmen, that like totally didn't uh, work out. Our expectations were very low, <laughs> and what we realized was that we just wanted to make something that people would use. You know, after after you put a year or a year and a half working on Future Freshmen and no one uses it, that's like heartbreaking, right? As someone who's Uh, creative, you really want people to to use uh, what you build. And so our goal with, with Snapchat was just to have people use it. And so we were so excited when four people, five people, <laughs> 10 people started using uh, the product. We never imagined that it could become what it is today. We were just really focused on making stuff that people really wanted to use and that you know made them smile or made their lives better. All of a sudden you had like a couple hundred thousand people on the app? Well, it really wasn't all of a sudden. It actually grew pretty slowly. Um, it took about a year uh, to really get uh, momentum. And I remember we actually had a, a, a little web link that would count how many snaps had, had been sent total. And, you know, I would refresh it. And I remember the early days when it was, you know, a thousand snaps or something. And then maybe every couple of days we'd add another hundred or something. And I was sitting, because uh, I was still in school at the time, sitting in the back of my class, you know, halfway through the year and I'm refreshing and the count is going up very quickly. And that's when I remember realizing like, oh, wow, there's actually a lot of people using this thing and sending snaps back and forth. And that's when the server bills got too expensive. Uh, and my dad, you know, refused refused to pay uh, for server <laughs> bills for people to send photos back and forth. I had uh, spent, you know, the uh, my grandparents had left me $10,000 when they passed away and I'd spent all that money. Bobby had, you know, had uh, another job and he'd maxed out his uh, credit card. And so we were really quite stuck because uh, we didn't have any way to, to pay the server bills. And right about that time, Uh, we got investment uh, from Lightspeed, uh, from Jeremy Liu over at Lightspeed, who invested $485,000 at, you know, a, I think like a $4 million valuation. <laughs> and we thought that we had raised more money than we could ever <laughs> possibly need. And, you know, I, I actually remember I was in a, a machine shop class because I was studying mechanical engineering and I saw the money get wired into our, our bank account and I went up to the professor and I said, I'm so sorry, I really need to focus on our business. <laughs> and, I, and I dropped the class. <laughs> okay. And then like the VC guys, they sort of helped you navigate towards the real business then or was it still like very freely built and, and, and experimenting? Well, one of the really interesting things about venture capitalists and, and one of the most important things I learned at Stanford is that the focus is primarily on building something that's really, really big. So very early on in the life of a new company like that, the focus isn't on generating revenue, it's on really expanding as quickly as possible to serve as many people as possible. And so, you know, the venture capitalists and my, some of my mentors uh, from school were just asking us, you know, how quickly can you grow this thing? Uh, you know, can you really make features uh, that, that people love? Of course, we had to build out the Android app, which we did. And About this time, uh, you know, I, I hadn't graduated, but we moved down into my dad's house. Uh, you know, my dad was like, I'm not going to pay for you to, to have an apartment or something in the Bay Area. So if you want to keep working on this project, you can live in live in my house. And in it, was it in Venice then, in LA? Uh, yeah, my dad's house at the time was in the Palisades. I think we got eventually we got kicked out after there were like eight of us living there or something like that. 
Uh, and my dad's girlfriend at the time, now wife, was like, enough, you know, you guys have to get out of here. So uh, so eventually then we got an office that was in Venice, uh, which was a lot of fun. Okay. And then was there any strategy to get new, new users or did it just happen by, by, by accident? I mean, was it like all viral effects or was it some strategy behind it? Yeah, the, the really great thing about Snapchat is that it's not fun to use unless you use it with a friend. So it's inherently viral. Huh. It's not necessarily viral the way that a social network is, um, but uh, and, and we can go into why that is, but it's viral in the way that a communications network is. And so as people want to talk with their friends, they teach their friends how to use Snapchat and bring them onto the service. And so the service really grew uh, organically as, as much as we tried even to, to market it. And early on, I would go, you know, there's a, a big mall um, in Santa Monica and I would go and try to hand out flyers and convince people to download the app. Nothing, uh, nothing worked better than people just using the service with their friends. In hindsight, would you like see the development of a social network as like a black swan event, something that happens once in a lifetime or like every, I don't know, other year, maybe somewhere in the world and some new social network pops up and it's a lot of luck and chance involved or is it something that you can somehow address and, and try to really make happen on purpose? Well, there's an enormous amount of, of good fortune involved for sure, uh, really in anything, uh, I think, in life. Um, When it comes to social networks, and, and we think of Snapchat more as a, a messaging app than a, a social network. Um, you know, social networks typically have very large and public friends list, public, uh, you know, content and public likes and comments. And so social networks end up feeling a lot like a, a big competition between friends to get attention. Snapchat's more of a visual messaging app. And so it's really for, for friends and family members to stay in touch and, and uh, you know, communicate visually. Um, And I do think it is quite rare uh, for new messaging apps or, or new social media apps uh, to, to develop. And usually they're built around, you know, core utility. And, and in the case of Snapchat, it was this new way of, of communicating using photos and videos uh, that was just much more fun and exciting than text message. But you were very convinced that this is going to become a huge company because there's the, all these stories about how you were approached by other companies to sell the business early and you didn't. Well, we, we certainly loved what we were doing. And we were worried that if we sold the company, that ultimately we wouldn't be able to fulfill our vision because our vision was very different than, than what other companies were working on at the time. So if you remember 10 years ago, companies were talking about how the world was going to be open and connected, everything was going to be public. And that really ran counter to a lot of our beliefs and how we talked about Snapchat and the importance of privacy and the importance of human relationships, building technology that actually supports the way that humans are used to interacting. Um, and so we were worried that, you know, if we sold the company, for example, that we wouldn't be able to continue to fulfill that that vision just because it was so different. But you also must have had the feeling it's going to be bigger. It's, it's still like a lot of like space ahead of us. We certainly saw a lot of opportunity because so many people were already using the product and there were still a lot of people who had never used it before. And so we thought that, you know, over time it could continue to grow. And, and of course it has, I think, You know, globally, we're, you know, more than 363 million daily active users. I think here in Germany, we reach 13 and a half million uh, people. And, and importantly, Th I 13 think and a half million in Germany, in which, Germany. which is 20 percent of the population, almost. And I think interestingly, you know, it's, it's about 90 percent of 13 to 24 year olds. So it really does, in, in our view, represent the future of the way that people want to communicate. So this is why you always want to hang on to it. You didn't want to give it away. Well, we were just having so much fun. I mean, every time Bobby and I would, would talk about it, you know, we love what we do. We love being able to innovate and make all these new products. We have tons of new ideas for, for new ways that we can serve our community. And so, you know, we just felt like we, 
you know, hadn't reached our full potential. And we still, we still feel that way. We still feel like we're so far from reaching the so full you, potential. So you, you never thought twice about like, damn, we should have sold at this valuation and that valuation. And you, uh, apparently never like, no doubts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no doubts, but I will say, you know, it, we do have to consider all that stuff very seriously because we have, uh, of course, obligations to our shareholders. And so every time, you know, that, that someone has approached us or, you know, a, a about acquiring our business. We talked to the board about it. And, you know, I think uh, we just have consistently believed that we have a much bigger opportunity in, in front of us. Well, it's still happening like quarterly, I would guess, or weekly, or how often do people no, approach you? No, 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 not, not anytime recently. <laughs> okay. And, and I mean, the, the environment has changed quite a bit. How do you um, look at it now? I mean, obviously when you started out, there was mostly Facebook and then Instagram, and now the environment has changed. Like, who do you see as a competitor today? There are a lot of competitors now for digital advertising. Obviously, the the big ones are Meta, Google, Amazon. I mean, they, these are enormous uh, competitors. And there's big upstarts like ByteDance, uh, for example. They're a really challenging uh, competitor because they have access to the Chinese market where most Western companies uh, are not able to offer tech services. And they take their success in the Chinese market and they reinvest uh, to, to grow outside uh, of China. And so that, that is a new dimension to competition that, that's different than you know, uh, the competition we grew up with 10 years ago. I read an interview where you said that you were surprised or you were almost um, uh, shocked by the amount of investment that ByteDance um, spent on acquiring new users. So they seem to follow a different path. No like natural organic growth, but they were investing billions, you said, in user acquisition. Yeah, that was the first time we really saw that strategy used at scale, which I, th I think is very interesting. They figured out that they could bootstrap both uh, the creator side of the marketplace and the content viewer side of the marketplace. And if they spent billions of dollars to bring new viewers and they spent money subsidizing the content creation, that over time they could get that flywheel going, uh, of course, with uh, their recommendation algorithm and, and build a really big business. And certainly they've, they've been correct. So, and I mean, they... Are they like right now your, your biggest problem in terms of competition? Well, our services are so fundamentally different. So as I mentioned, Snapchat's really about messaging with, with friends and family. So the core product value we offer is very different uh, than, than TikTok. But TikTok does compete with us in terms of our content business. So we have stories and we have spotlight. Stories is a way that people share what's happening with their you know, friends and family throughout their day. And we also have you know, professional uh, content publishers on our platform who share you know, professional content uh, in, in the form of stories uh, with Snapchatters. And then we have Spotlight, uh, which is our entertainment platform where people can create videos and submit them and, and get a bunch of uh, distribution. We moderate all the content that appears, uh, you know, broadcast content that appears on our platform. So we moderate spotlight content, but it is a way uh, for creators to reach uh, a really large audience. So if you look at our, our content business specifically, that is an area uh, where we compete uh, with TikTok for time spent, for example. Before TikTok came along, it seemed like you were the most innovative company out there. You were the ones that like had all the new features and everything. How does innovation happen at Snap? Is it, is it you and Bobby sitting and talking and then you brush your teeth and then you have an idea? Or is there a lab or like an R&D team? How does it work? Innovation comes from everywhere at Snap. So our, our fundamental view is that everybody is born creative. 
that ultimately that creativity can be suppressed by things like fear. You know, as we get older, we go through school and things like that. We're taught not to share our new crazy ideas uh, because they're, you know, different. Um, and so our view is that if we create a culture at Snap that's kind and smart and creative with an emphasis on, on kind, that we have an environment where everyone can be creative and, and bring their totally crazy and new ideas. Uh, and then I think the really important thing is the way that we then bring those ideas to market by working together with our engineering teams, uh, you know, of course, our, our product teams, our policy teams, our legal teams, you name it, uh, to, to really bring these new innovations and, and, and products to, to customers. But only about 1%, maybe less than 1% of the ideas we come up with ever make it to, to our community. Is it sometimes frustrating to you that other companies pick up your ideas and then put them on their own platforms? I think it's a, a sign that we continue to innovate. Uh, and so in that way, I think it uh, it can be really exciting. As a designer, when, you know, as I mentioned, when you build something, you just want people to use it. And so the idea that some of the things that we've designed and built over the years are now used by billions of people, both on Snapchat and off of Snapchat is, is really exciting. I think You know, it, it obviously is is challenging from a competitive perspective, why, which is why it's so important to continue innovating. Um, so I think if we ever felt like we were out of new ideas, we'd be concerned. But we've got so many things we haven't built yet and so many new ideas we want to try um, that, you know, if we just continue innovating, we really believe we can continue to serve our community and people will love using our products. R right now, what's the what's the most important feature, the most important innovation that, that you focus on that you would like, you know, hope for Snap to succeed? One of our, our big areas of focus right now is around augmented reality because we really believe that it represents the, the future of computing. So today, 250 million people engage with AR just inside of Snapchat. That doesn't include all of our partners that have integrated our AR technology into their apps or their websites. And the thing that's really fun uh, about AR is that it's much more immersive. It, it brings computing to life in three dimensions. Uh, and today, lots of people use it to express themselves. They also use it to do things like try on clothes or to, to learn about the world walking through you know, the, uh, the solar system in, in their living room. And, and for us, uh, all of our investments in our AR platform allow us to enable hundreds of thousands of developers to build millions of these uh, AR experiences, which mostly today, as I mentioned, are experienced on the phone, but in the future will be experienced through wearable technology like AR glasses. I mean, you're so convinced that, apparently you're so convinced that augmented reality is the thing and you're investing millions or billions into that. What makes you so certain? I mean, you need a lot of conviction to make those huge bets. And, and, and why do you think that is the thing? I mean, what gives you, is it gut feeling? Is it research? How do you make those big bets? Well, I think a lot of our certainty comes from the way that people are already using AR today. So AR is already an at-scale, everyday use case uh, for people who use Snapchat. And what we realized was that AR is very constrained by the smartphone. So it's this very tiny screen. It doesn't feel very immersive. You've got to interact you know, on, on this touch screen with your thumbs. It's not a particularly inspiring way to use augmented reality, but yet hundreds of millions of people engage with AR every single day. And so for a, a product that's this early in its development, that's so limited in its use on smartphones to be that widely appealing already, tells us that as we move to these form factors where AR can really unlock its full potential by being totally uh, immersive, allowing people the freedom to use technology integrated into the real world instead of staring down at their tiny phone screen or being stuck behind their desktop, that that's really what, uh, what inspires us. So I, I think for us, it's more of a continuation of the work we're already doing today on the smartphone and unlocking the full potential of AR uh, you know, with, with AR glasses. 
a couple of years ago, you said um, Snap is basically a, a glasses uh, company. It's it's all about the glass camera, but also the glasses. Is that still like a are the glasses like an important uh, still element to what Snap does? Well, they're a really small part of our business today. So we have AR glasses that are already used by lots of different developers to build all sorts of AR experiences, uh, but they're not available to consumers. We don't produce them in large uh, quantities. So, so that thing is is basically over? No, not at all. We're, we've been investing in glasses now for eight years. Um, I will. I would imagine it will take you know at least till the end of this decade before they're widely adopted by uh, consumers. There's a lot of important technological breakthroughs that will need to happen along the way. Most of them have to do with the optical engine and, and battery life. But by experimenting with AR glasses and releasing them, you know, consistently for developers, we're learning a lot about what sort of software needs to power those sorts of glasses and what kind of platform we need to build to make AR developers successful in the future. And that is extremely exciting. So just by building glasses and taking these incremental steps every couple of years to re you know, release a new version that developers can play with, we're learning a ton and incorporating that into the architecture of our software platform. Is it a confirmation or a scary sign that now companies like Apple and others are also like apparently putting so much emphasis on glasses? I think it just reflects an acknowledgement of the way that computing has evolved over the past several decades to become more personal. So if you think about the sort of trajectory we've been on, starting with you know mainframe computers, and then wow, with the desktop, everyone could have a computer in their home, and of course that unlocked you know information retrieval for for the masses, right, for billions of people around the world. And then we saw an evolution uh, from there to laptops, which made computers a little more personal. You could take them around with you and go work in a coffee shop or something like that. And then a, a, a quite a significant, I think maybe even quantum leap with smartphones. And all of a sudden everyone had a computer in their pocket. And I think if you look at just that trajectory, the way that computing has become more personal and more integrated in our everyday lives, as people project forward and think about what the future of computing is gonna look like, I think almost unquestionably it will be more personal and people will want computing to be much more integrated in their lives. When we talk to our community, one of their primary complaints is that they actually feel like computing gets in the way, right, of their everyday experiences. They feel frustrated uh, that they have to go stare down at their phone to access the benefits of computing. That, and that feels sometimes like it takes them out of the experiences they're having with their friends and family in the real world. So I think there's a huge amount of consumer demand to integrate computing into the world that we all share and enjoy. Uh, and, and ultimately, that's, I, I think, the trajectory that lots of companies are observing and, and want to be a part of. That sounds like you're a big believer into the real world and that computing is happening in the real world and not so much in the metaverse. We are big fans of the real world. Uh, and, and we think many people are too. And, and I think that's a testament to why hundreds of millions of people are already using AR so frequently, because they really enjoy bringing computing into the world around them. I mean, but you notice and you probably observe what the people at Meta are spending on the metaverse. There's billions and billions being deployed for developments and new software around metaverse ideas. What do you think when you see that? Well, I, I just think it represents a, a very different vision than what we're trying to build uh, at Snapchat, because fundamentally it, it assumes that people are going to want to essentially live inside their computers, live inside these virtual experiences. And I think for anyone that's tried 
uh, you know, a VR headset, for example, you always feel concerned that you're going to, you know, knock into a lamp or something behind <laughs> you, uh, you know, and, and I think that that can be a really unnerving experience for, for people. And I think in contrast, when folks try AR glasses and they realize the freedom they have to walk around and enjoy the world around them and to only use computing when they want to enhance the world rather than being stuck inside a, a, a computer, I think people can really feel the differences and the benefits. So I, I guess that that metaverse direction just represents something very different than what we're trying to build at Snap. Do you sometimes think that um, social platforms, messaging, networks, whatever, could be a generational thing that you reach like a certain age group 10 years, maybe 15 years, like one generation. And then the next generation has its own platform, its own service, and you, you can't do anything about it. So it's just, you have like a built-in lifetime if you, if you want with those platforms. I think when it comes to social media, it's incredibly likely that that's the case because a lot of social media is built on this competition between people for who can be most popular. That's the basic idea of the game. And every generation, because social media is so public, kind of feels uncomfortable when a different generation is on that platform as well and they have to compete with each other for, for attention. And that's why I think we've seen a transition over the years. You know, first there was Facebook and then Instagram. Now it seems like TikTok is, is really, uh, you know, become a, a very popular social platform. Um, and, and again, I feel like that's fundamentally different than Snapchat as a communication service. And one of the early questions we always got from people is like, oh, isn't it so embarrassing if your parents are on Snapchat? And, and it's not embarrassing <laughs> at, it's not embarrassing at all because we don't have a public friends list and there's no way for your parents to publicly embarrass you. And in fact, most people really enjoy communicating with their parents uh, on Snapchat or having a group with their family to, to share snaps and you know photos and videos back and forth. So I do think that's a big difference between a, you know a, a messaging platform like Snapchat and a social media platform, you know like Facebook or, or Instagram. Let me do a quick sidestep and ask you about another like huge tech development in the past years and especially in Silicon Valley and get your opinion on it. Um, crypto, crypto, how did you, how do you see that? I mean, that has had this a huge peak in the past. Now it's, it's it seems like it's a lot more difficult and there's this whole Sam Bankman-Fried episode and you probably follow all that. What do you think when you see that? Uh well, I, I think it's really a shame because, you know, there was a lot of excitement around crypto, a lot of People uh, invested a lot of money in, in crypto and have lost a lot of money. And I think that that's, you know, obviously very uh, unfortunate. I think it remains to be seen what happens with, you know, blockchain technology. I, I think it's still very early and there are certainly folks who are trying to do interesting things there. Uh, but but overall, I think, you know, obviously the financial speculation around cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, I, I think that time has passed. And now the question is what, what will come out of uh, that period of time in terms of the, you know, the uh, applications of blockchain technology. But it seemed like you never really jumped onto the crypto train in the past years. I mean, all these companies try to establish their own coins and like their own sort of like crypto plays. Snap didn't do that much. Well, we, we thought about it because we got a lot of feedback from, you know, developers building AR experiences that they wanted to be able to link those AR experiences to the blockchain, for example, um, you know, maybe to allow people to buy and authenticate a, a work of art and augmented reality. So we did do some exploration there. And, and I think we'll probably continue uh, to, to explore those ideas if we feel like those can really benefit AR developers. But, uh, you know, we, we didn't develop our own token or something like that. So right now, Snap is mostly in terms of revenue reliant on ads, right? It's like ads is what keeps you alive, what builds your revenue. 
Yeah, we, we uh, generate the vast majority of our, our revenue from advertising. Is, is that something that you sometimes regret and you wish you had a subscription model or something, some, some other type of stuff that you could sell? Well, we do have a subscription model uh, <laughs> called Snapchat Plus, uh, which has been really fun to develop over the past uh, past year or so uh, that you know provides new sort of experimental and exclusive features uh, to, to subscribers. So that's been really, really fun uh, to work on. Over time, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's going to generate as much revenue as our advertising business, but it has been a, a lot of fun to build those special features uh, for people who, who really uh, you know, want to get more value out of Snapchat. Are you like um, following what's happening around Twitter these days? I, 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 uh, gosh, I've had a few, uh, chats with friends who work there and, and what, <laughs> no, I, I have not, uh, I've not, uh, caught up with him lately. Okay. Well, I mean, what's your perspective? Are you surprised? Were you surprised that this whole deal happened at all? Um, well, you know, It's very interesting because Elon's obviously a super user uh, of Twitter and has a ton of really great uh, ideas, I think, about how to improve um, the service. And, and I think one of the frustrations people have had over the years with, with Twitter is that it didn't evolve very much as, as a product. And people felt like it didn't unlock its full potential and, and maybe didn't innovate as quickly as it could. So I think it'll be interesting to see over time. I still think it's very early. And obviously, you know, when, when any big change like this happens, people are very quick to judge. But I, I think, you know, the platform obviously has a, has a ton of engagement, people, including world leaders who really rely on it to, to reach their constituents. And so I think we need to give uh, the team some time to, to think about, you know, how they want to evolve the service in the future. There's a lot of articles and a lot of opinion um, out there that you can read that says everybody's observing what Elon does at Twitter and that now that he laid off half the workforce there, that's an inspiration to other Silicon Valley leaders such as you who's like, oh, okay, look, we could they can do like the same business with half the people, so can probably we. Is that something that you like look at and that your investors tell you to look at and look, why can't you like run the business with less people? I don't think so. I, I think those circumstances are quite unique. If you think about our team, we're roughly 5,000 people. We serve 363 million uh, people every single day. So I think the ratio of, of team members at Snap to the the you know hundreds of millions of people uh, that we serve is is quite extraordinary. And we've got tons of team members working as hard as they possibly can to continue to serve uh, our community. And and we really value our team and the work they're doing. So. You know, even though, uh, of course, these really challenging, you know, uh, macro, this really challenging macroeconomic environment has required us to make some changes and reprioritize as a business. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine being able to serve a community at snap scale and continue to innovate, uh, you know, without a, a really strong team. So now we talked about um, Twitter, a little bit of crypto. Like one thing that I want to ask, also ask is um, your point of view on, on, on TikTok and the whole legislation around it. There's a lot of talk that maybe TikTok should be banned in the US, maybe it should be banned in Europe. What, what's your perspective? I mean, it would certainly help you if they weren't there. Well, I think, uh, you know, at a very high level, um, people have had a lot of these concerns for a long time, but over the past, you know, six or nine months, there's been a lot of revelations about things that have happened at TikTok, for example, you know, spying on journalists, for example, or, or you know, suppressing different types of content or promoting other types of content. That have raised a lot of, of uh, I think, more serious concerns. So people were always skeptical or suspicious, but then the revelations that a lot of these things have happened have certainly shifted the conversation to one that that's a lot more serious. And I, I think you know, as as people look at the the certain the, the environment today in technology, you know, they acknowledge that it can be difficult for Western technology companies to access the the Chinese market and. 
you know, therefore, does it make sense to have a much more reciprocal approach? You can kind of see this as well, you know, when we think about a piece of legislation like the CHIPS Act, for example, where the United States and China are trying to find ways to work together economically in certain areas, but are also realizing that in other areas that are more sensitive uh, or more important to a nation's sovereignty, uh, their paths will diverge a bit more. And you know, thinking about American history, for example, there have been a lot of laws over you know a very long period of time that prohibited uh, foreign uh, companies, for example, or, or foreign governments to acquire. Uh, broadcast networks, for example, or radio stations, because there were concerns in the United States historically that you know other foreign entities might try to influence uh, the way that Americans think or, or feel. And so, so I do think that um, a lot of the conversations that are being had today have a lot of roots historically in how we've thought about protecting uh, broadcast media and in the Western world. But I think the conversation, as you point out, has gotten a lot more serious now that people have discovered that a lot of their worst fears actually were, you know, uh, accurate. Okay. So uh, like, uh, you'd probably benefit from them not being there. So that, is that like something that you could expect? Do you think that's going to happen? Or is that probably like something that just wishful thinking from your perspective? Well, you know, it's, it, it's really hard to say. I mean, maybe a good example uh, would be India, where India has already taken steps uh, to, to ban TikTok completely huh. and, and where, uh, you know, we've been operating for, For a long time, again, that's that's an example where our service fundamentally is is around communication, around messaging, and so we've always offered differentiated uh, value there. But on the content side of our business, we don't have to compete uh, in the same way against TikTok for for time spent. So uh, I do think India is is maybe an example. Um, but if if you look at our business and and how we're going to be able to grow advertising revenue over time, I think the competitors are much more you know. Uh, Alphabet, for example, with YouTube or, or Meta's performance advertising business. And that's where we'll be able to take more share uh, over time. What's the role of that Europe plays for Snap? I mean, you come here frequently. I think we even met uh, two or three years ago in Hamburg, now in Berlin. You seem to be here quite a bit. Um, how important is Europe, especially Germany, for you? Europe's incredibly uh, important to our business, both in terms of our community uh, that's here, but also in terms of the innovation that's happening. So, for example, here in Germany, we have a, a team working on uh, fit and size and AR try-on. Uh, you bought, you bought a Berlin-based company. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really fun, uh, called, called Fit Analytics. Yeah. Um, and what that does is help merchants both increase their conversions because people are able to visualize clothing before they buy it. And also reduce their returns because merchants are able to, you know, help their customers find the right fit and size for their uh, uh, for their purchase. Um, so that's an example of using augmented reality in a very utilitarian way to solve a problem for customers and merchants. And you know that that's been a really uh, great investment here for us in Berlin. So, but you also look at the the role that Europe plays on a, on a, on a global on a macro level. Is that something that that you follow that is, is, that you care about? I, th I think a strong uh, Europe is just vitally important to uh, a future world that is open and, and democratic. And so I do think right now uh, the relationship between the U.S. and, and Europe is, is just critically important. It seems like there are a lot of uh, good conversations happening along those lines. And I think from, from a U.S. perspective, we really admire the way uh, that the European Union has been able to thoughtfully develop regulation for technology companies. You know, in the United States, we still don't have federal privacy legislation. Here in Europe, uh, you know, we've moved already far beyond uh, GDPR uh, to things like the DSA and, and the DMA. And so I, I think from, from a U.S. perspective, 
we really admire the way that the legislative process has tackled some of these very complex, uh, you know, issues with with technology companies. I mean, how does it happen? You like, so how do you spot a billion-based company? You somebody on your team said, "Look, these guys at Analytics, they do a good job. Take a look at them, and then you fly over and meet them, and then in the end, push the company." How, what's the process? I guess it's something like that. You know, we we typically uh, develop a sort of a, a thesis about how we think that technology is going to evolve, and. As we looked at augmented reality, it was so clear that AR was going to play a transformational role in, in e-commerce. And for us to be uh, successful there, we wanted to make sure that beyond you know, visualization and try-on, that we were also adding more value for merchants that would help us expand uh, that business. So today, uh, we, we actually have a, an enterprise business um, where we offer something called Shopping Suite, which combines our uh, you know, AR visualization technology, a back-end service for managing 3D assets that we also acquired, and uh, you know, this, uh, the, the Fit Analytics Fit and Size service. And so being able to offer all of those services to e-commerce merchants, I, I think is much more compelling than just a standalone you know, AR visualization product. And one of the things that we believe is going to be important to growing that enterprise business over time. How tough was it for you that in the past year or so, the whole dynamics around digital business changed? I mean, your stock price changed quite a bit. Um, like It feels like a lot of people that were like the heroes, like took a different path. Um, was that like a, a huge hit that you felt personally or was it just like a, something that you observed around you? How close are you to all these turbulences? Well, you know, throughout the, the history of our uh, business, our stock price has gone up and down uh, quite a lot. Uh, in this case, it's, it's different because so many uh, technology businesses have been impacted. The entire sector has been impacted. So in some ways, uh, that's easier because last time around in 2017 or 2018, it was really us because we were dealing with a lot of structural challenges in our business. We were rebuilding our Android application. We were you know, uh, migrating to a self-serve advertising uh, platform. Instagram had copied stories. There were a lot of real challenges at the time, you know, in that 2017, 2018 time period. And our stock, I think, you know, I remember got down to like 499 or, or something like that. And there was a huge amount of pressure on the business and questions about whether the business would even be able to succeed long-term. This period of time is, is very different. Um, the market has been really broadly impacted by, you know, rising interest rates, by inflation, that have changed, of course, the dynamics in the advertising business. There are, of course, the, the platform policy uh, changes that have you know, totally disrupted the way that people buy and measure and optimize uh, their, their advertising. Um, so, so overall, I would say because this time around, the market more broadly has been impacted, the challenges are, are very different. And a lot of what we're trying to do is just figure out how to best serve our advertising partners and help them grow their business through this period of time. Because if we can help them grow their businesses, we'll be able uh, to grow our business uh, as well. And so we've been making a lot of investments and improvements to our performance advertising platform to drive more return on advertising spend, uh, which is going to be incredibly important through this you know, economic transition where people People, you know, are are less focused on top line growth and are more focused on on bottom line profitability. Digital advertising is going to be a really important component of driving growth in in the bottom line in the years to come. And so that's that's really where we're focused right now. Is there a lot of are there a lot of frustrated colleagues or employees at Snap because usually they are also like compensated for their work with the stock and stock options shares of some type, and now that the stock is like a lot lower. Does it like lead to a lot of frustration? A lot of people not 
being happy with the, the payment has definitely uh, actually gone down like you know without you doing much uh, of course i think it can be frustrating when there's volatility in a stock price but that's also part of working at a publicly traded company um, and so i do think team members really benefit when the stock price goes up dramatically. So I think from 499, I think the stock price probably got close to $80 or something a year or two ago. And, and so our team members benefited uh, from that when the stock price increased. And then of course, now uh, when the stock price decreases, it, it definitely can be frustrating for folks. But I think it's also very motivating uh, because we know what we need to do to reaccelerate uh, our revenue growth. We're very focused on making uh, progress there. And the business is very well positioned because unlike you know 2017 or 2018, as I mentioned, we're very well capitalized. I think we've got almost like $4 billion in, in cash on hand, uh, which is really different than the way the business was positioned before. And that's allowed us to buy back a lot of stock and offset dilution so that we can continue to, to compensate our team members without negatively impacting our shareholders. That's just something that wasn't available to us uh, before and in, in, you know when our stock took a hit. But this time, uh, I think is something that's, that's you know, positioned us a lot more effectively. For you personally, I mean, you're 32 years old. I think you have three kids. Your wife is quite successful from my understanding. Um, you own this very valuable company. What's left on your personal bucket list? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I'm really focused on being a good dad, uh, <laughs> for sure. Good husband. It, it, it's three kids or two kids? Three kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Flynn's 12 and Hart is four and Miles is three. Yeah. Three boys. It yeah. is totally wild uh, <laughs> in our house. Oh my goodness. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So good dad, uh, good husband, and, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully a good leader. And, you know, we'll build some stuff that, that makes a positive impact in the world and, you know, makes things better. So, but there's no real, like literal bucket list where you're like, like, I want to do that. I want to do that. Well, you're inspiring. Maybe I should get a little more, uh, structured with my planning here. I mean, all these other, like you, you, the colleagues that have different uh, situation that like you, they buy sports teams, all of a sudden they're in discussions to I don't know, become an owner of an NBA team or something like that. That's <laughs> nothing for you. You know, I, I guess, uh, for me, my, my passion has always just been building new products and, and innovating. And that's really what I love to do. And one of the things that, that I get to do is part of my job now. So I, I just, I, I see so much opportunity to continue to innovate and that's what makes me happy in addition to hanging out with our family. So hopefully I'll just keep doing that. Do you sometimes have to still, or like, when did it go away? Or when was this the strongest that you had to pinch yourself about the situation that you're in. I mean, you're so young and all of a sudden, like the dynamics around you must have been so strong and it put you in a position that's very unique and very unusual. And I mean, I'm sure you didn't expect that to happen when you were sitting in that class in Stanford and all of a sudden you're in a position, you're the founder yourself, you're like one of these people. Um, is it sometimes still hard to realize? I pinch myself every single day and I Seriously? wake up and I feel unbelievably blessed and grateful. I mean, this is, it's just extraordinary to be able to have this opportunity. And yeah, there's not a minute that I just don't, I, that I don't feel overwhelmed, so you frankly, don't, with gratitude. Don't, so. don't take nothing for granted. No, never, never. Thank you very much. Buzz.